This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, A New Chronology for Old Testament Times. And the author is Jan Van Tyle. And Jan joins us now from Brussels, Belgium for Author Talk. Hello, Jan. Good morning. Good morning to you. Great to have you with us. Uh, let me just read a statement that you have about your book. This is a book that brings you in an uninterrupted chronological manner from Adam to Christ in a highly readable and sometimes even humorous manner and in fast-moving texts. It is also full of rare and interesting details that are not in the Bible but in a host of other and old, mostly unknown texts. So you're quite a researcher. You're quite a researcher, Jan. Uh, tell us a little bit about your background and why you wrote the book. Okay, uh, about 15 years ago, uh, I was very interested, I always have been interested in the, in the numbers in the Bible. And I was especially struck, struck when I was researching a small item somewhere, and I saw in, in a book that is now called, a very old and, and unknown book, that is now called The Life of Adam and Eve, it's about several hundred years old, that book. Uh, I read that God made a promise to Adam, saying that it will be exactly 5,500 years between the time when you, Adam, arrived in this world and that a man that many will call the Christ will arrive in this world. So between Adam and Christ, it will be exactly 5,500 years. I thought this was a very strange number and I thought it was a very strange promise for God to make. So I went and researched a little bit and a little bit started an awful lot and in the end I was researching for 12 years to find out if this indeed was true, that there are exactly 5,500 years between the arrival of Adam and the arrival of Christ. A uh, couple of, uh, let's, let's kind of go over some questions that will kind of bring to light some of the areas that you focus on. Uh, for example, from your point of view, why did the Egyptians turn against the Hebrews? It was because of the program that Joseph has set up. Joseph came to, to the Pharaoh with a dream that he, uh, he had explained his dream. But Pharaoh was not so happy with the dream, especially. He was especially happy because they wrote it implicated for, for the Pharaoh. Joseph had found a system whereby he could use this, this, this seven years of lean years and then later on the seven fat years to make the Pharaoh the richest man in the world. What he, what he did was, in the first year of, this, of the meager years, of, of the thin years, he collected, or rather taxed, everybody 20% of the total produce of the country and had it stored, and seven years long he did that. Seven years long he got 20% of all the produce of the country, of all the people, and stored it in, in the pharaoh's uh, storage tanks, and storage buildings. And when the lean years came, he sold the stuff that he got free, that he confiscated really, he sold it for good money, back to the people he got it from. He did this for seven years. In the beginning he got money for it, then people ran out of money, so he started getting jewels for it. When they had no more Jews, they sold the cattle and the end they sold their houses. So the Egyptians in the end had nothing anymore. But this Joseph's brothers and the whole Joseph's family was, was very well off because he, of course, took very well care of his own, of his own people. So that's why the Egyptians turned against the Pharaoh in the end and also against, against uh, the, the, the Hebrews. Here's another question that most people uh, wouldn't probably ask. 
Who was Cain's father? Yeah, that's, this was quite a bombshell when I found that out. I was intrigued by several things about regarding Cain in, in the Bible. <clears throat> Number one was, why would that the guy such a bad, nasty character? Nobody else that was created, that was born, or that was uh, that arrived in the world had a bad guy, had those bad genes. But Cain had. Why did not why did God not accept his sacrifice, whereas he kept very, very readily the exercise, these sacrifices from, 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 from Abel? Why, why did he accept those? Why not those from Cain? Another thing that struck me, why in the three challenges list in the Bible, one in Genesis, one in Chronicles, and one in, in St. Luke, why is the name of Cain not mentioned anywhere as the son of, 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 of Adam? So start looking and start looking at some old text, even the Bible text. Everywhere there it appears that Cain was the, was the son of the devil. It says even so in the Bible. It says in Genesis, for example, it is called, Cain is called, he is the one from the evil one, evil one being, of course, the devil. In the legends of the Jews, in very old books, there's four volumes. In the first volume it says, Satan, in the guise of serpent, approached Eve and the and the fruit of their union was Cain. In the New, New Testament, in in Saint Luke, sorry, Saint John, it says again, "Don't do like Cain did, who was of the of the wicked one, being the being the, the devil, of course." Again, the clearest text of all, you can find it at Targum. There it says literally, "And Adam knew that his wife Eve had conceived from the from the from the angel Samuel, not Samuel, but Samuel." And, and the fruit of the union was Cain. So there's several texts here, there are more texts, of course, that states very clearly that Cain was not the son of Adam, but he was the son of the devil, and Eve, of course. Another question, uh, why did God attack Moses and even wanted to kill him when he was on his way to see the Pharaoh? Moses was uncircumcised, and that God didn't like that one bit. So one day he got angry with Moses. I told him this discussion about the dispute. And the, the, Moses was uncircumcised. So God wanted him to circumcise, get circumcised. He, he refused. So God got so angry he wanted to kill him. That's as simple as that. He went to kill the one guy he trained and he set up to, to, to deliver the, the, the Israelis from, 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 the, from the Egyptians. And he was willing to, willing to kill him. Now, as you look at the Bible, Jan, do you believe in the inerrancy of the Bible? No, I think it's a silly theory. Don't forget, there are about 12 different Bibles, that are more even, maybe even 2,000 Bibles, that are regularly in use in, 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 in the United States alone, in America alone, in the English language. They're not all the same. Quite a few titles are different from one to another. So if you go and look at the inerrancy of the Bible, you have to decide which Bible we're talking about. So they can't all be wrong, they can't all be right. So which Bible do we choose? And even if we, we have chosen, we must still see what about the different languages. The Bible's been translated in about five, no, about 200 languages, 230 languages. Many of them are quite different in the text. I have several, several different languages here, I speak six languages, so I have Bibles in six different languages. And I see there are quite differences in the text. So which, which language is the correct one? It's a very difficult, very difficult question to answer if the Bible is inerrant or not. 
to me, for, for many people, to me it's very easy. The Bible has many errors in it. I think the inerrancy of the Bible was really something that was invented by monolingual enthusiasts whose perception of the world stops his own front porch. Well, and you found that through your research, as you say, there's always a way to find the correct answer to a problem if you dig deep enough and are not afraid to leave the beaten path. So you've gone outside this uh, biblical box to really find the, in your mind, the truth. That's, that's what I think. I went to, to I think it's, it's, yeah, I went to, to quite some lengths to, to, to look at different titles to different texts and very old books and rare books and, Oh, the Bible alone is is, is not uh, not enough to 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 prove those five thousand five hundred years, and there's not enough to 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 state what actually really happened in all those in all those years. You need other books. You need other texts. Well, here's another question: How come the Hebrews never established a real empire despite the assistance of an all-powerful God? That's a very, very difficult question to answer. I don't know I have the answer. Uh, there's many, well, let's put it this way. No empire lasts forever. Many empires disappear within, within a day, within two days. The Babylonian Empire disappeared in one night. So that, that, that's, uh, that's a difficult question to answer. I think it is also because when God was in the beginning with his people, he, he led the people. In the end, he, he didn't... It was not so present anymore. One starts wondering what, what he did in the end. He sort of reacted. He didn't act anymore. Whenever they were in trouble, he came down with hell and brimstone and all sorts of nasty things. But he didn't really lead them anymore. So I think they, they were lacking a leader. So uh, nobody has the exclusivity to the truth? No, I don't think anybody has. No, no Nobody in this world has, no. I don't think there is, there is one man who has all the truth and who knows all the truth and nothing other than the truth. I don't think so. As you've done all this research and, and, of course, studied the Bible so much, how did your perception of God change during the writing of your book? Quite a lot. Uh, there's, there's quite a change in, in my attitude towards God. First, I have a, a rather strict and long Christian upbringing. One, one learns that God is quite a benevolent being who, who severely punishes. Only when you've been very, very, very naughty for a long time. When you read the Bible carefully, you see this, he's not so benevolent. He's quite, he's quite jealous. He's quite aggressive. He's, he's got a very short temper, like he showed it with Moses, who he nearly killed just because the guy wasn't circumcised. Uh, there are many items also that he's very, very short with, with, with Saul, for example. He, he appoints Saul as, as a king, and then a few, few years later, or a few months later, he, he, he puts another king in charge, like, like in David. And he's, he's, he's very, he's very, oh, shall I say, he's not very, doesn't follow a strict line. He's, he's, he's very, uh, he's, he's warlike. He's aggressive, I find. Well, he certainly, as you put it, uh, created a lot of fireworks wherever he uh, moved. Uh, there was always this cloud of smoke. There, you know, the earth trembled. There were the earthquakes. There were terrible noises and fire. What was all that about? I have my own theory, which not many people believe in. But I'm very, very sure that that God that you talk about in the Bible is moving around in in in, in, in spacecraft or in, in definitely in sort of a rocket. If you read the Bible carefully, you read the text carefully. 
it exactly sounds exactly the same like like what we see happening on Cape Canaveral when when he comes down uh, the 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 earth trembles the, the fire and smoke and when he leaves his fire and smoke people can't they can't come close to to, to him because otherwise they get they get killed it's it's uh, it's very much like like very much like stories of of uh, Ezekiel and others whereby these people really come or these beings. Really came on 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 on, on, on craft, flying craft, spacecraft, or flying aircraft, or whatever. Now, many might be critical of you because you're a non-professional, uh, and uh, highly professional scholars may say, "What? Why are, do you have the right to write a book like this?" <laughs> Everybody got the right to book. Everybody got the right to write a book. Everybody got the right to have to bring his opinion. To, to the world, everybody has, I find, the freedom of speech. Uh, so I'm, I don't want to say I'm more qualified than the professionals. I don't, I'm also not less, not, not less qualified. Why should I be less qualified if I spent 12 years of my life studying a certain matter? Uh, why should I be not as, as good as somebody who spent, spent five years, six years at, at college? So who do you think the Bible, this uh, book, your book, a new, a new chronology for Old Testament times, who does it appeal to? Uh, again, it's difficult to, 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 to define, but I think the people who would be interested in it, would be people who are interested in the Bible, of course, who know the Bible a little bit, who, who are interested in, in knowing what, what really happened, and, and, and read also another opinion. Uh, there will be those, of course, that will find it blasphemous. Uh, because it doesn't, it doesn't say that the Bible is, 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 is the only correct word in, in, in the world. But I don't think it's blasphemous. I think it's, I think bringing the truth to, 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 good, all the truth in, in, in one book. Of course, I'm not the only one who's right. There could be other ones that, that have different opinions that are more right than I am, of course. But I think I made a, a very, very good statement, and I think I, I proved the point that 5,500 years is exactly the time difference between the arrival of Adam and the arrival of Christ. Well, your research has uh, obviously revealed a lot of new information, uh, some that would challenge the status quo of many Christians. Uh, Jan Van Tyle, he is the author of his book, A New Chronology for Old Testament Times. Jan, tell us how we can get your book. Uh, best is through people like Amazon, like uh, Author House, like uh, Google. Probably this is the most uh, you can. Oh, oh, it's on Facebook. It, it, uh, it's on most of the media. So it seems to get all in some bookstores already. Now I'm passing over it to the present and things like this. Any other closing thoughts, Jan? No, I thank you very much for the time you allotted me. Thank you very much for for listening to me, and thank you for for your questions. Well, thank you for joining us on Author Talk. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station? Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere 
to hear the latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Girlfriend It is on Toginet. Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central, with your hosts Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan. This show is your chance to share, learn, laugh, and connect with other women. The Girlfriend at Principal was born out of loss. Lisa had recently had her mother pass away from cancer, and my mom um, was murdered. A man just walking into a room and started a 23-second shooting spree. I think one of the things we both realized going through those tragedies is that you can be extremely okay and be extremely sad. Check out girlfriended.com. And then be a part of Girlfriended, the radio show, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central. You know, your boyfriend or, or your husband or whatever, they don't totally understand that emotional side to a woman like another woman does. And I think that's so important just to mm-hmm. have somebody that you go, she gets me. Check out the website, girlfriended.com. Don't miss Girlfriended with Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back. To Author Talk, brought to you by Author House, helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, Love, Please, a memoir of destiny, loss, and healing, and the author is Susanna Heyman Chafee, and Susanna joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Susanna. Hello, nice to meet you. Nice to have you on the show. Uh, This book, as you write, is a voyage of love between two people, their families, friends, and children. It also encourages and inspires us to keep faith in the midst of what seems to be impossible, sometimes an impossible life journey, proving that with courage and determination, anything can be accomplished. It's a human story told simply and honestly about life and love. Well, you've had an extraordinary life. Kind of take us back, and how did you become a dancer? Well, I think I was actually born to be a dancer. Ever since I can remember as a small child, I would put skirts on and twirl twirl around and dance, and my parents always encouraged me, and uh, I think that was very helpful. And then when we were traveling through South America, uh, Oleg Briansky was uh, traveling with Beryl Gray from the Festival Ballet in London, and I absolutely fell in love with with the, the ballet and um, never looked back. And I think at the age of 10, my father said he would dedicate himself to giving me the best education he could if I would co- guarantee him 100% that I would do the same. And and at 10, not really knowing what I was saying, I said, absolutely, and never looked back. He didn't look back, nor did I. And, and it set me off on this incredible adventure of, of being a dancer traveling around the world. And, of course, your whole life started with traveling around the world just as a little baby. Yes, that's right. I'm a gypsy at heart. <laughs> <laughs> your parents were world travelers, and, of course, you fell in love with dancing you also fell in love with your soulmate in Japan. Yes, he was a Japanese architect and a very beautiful man. He, he was my version of Alain Delon, the French actor, Japanese version of that. Um, I saw him walk in with his friend who was a very tall Japanese, the son of the Kikoman family. 
and he was something like six foot two, and we were all uh, having dinner at the hotel restaurant as these two gorgeous men walked in, and it was the end of a long tour, and all of us slightly lonely, and um, I had been alone for about a year and was feeling sad about this, but I saw these two men walk in, and I said to everybody, gosh, look at these two gorgeous creatures who just walked in. And one of them happened to recognize me, who was actually my husband, became my husband. I'd met him very briefly at a friend's loft in New York. Um, and uh, he came over and reminded me. And uh, it was love at first sight. And uh, he asked me to marry him two weeks later. So um, oh, my it was destiny. Whirlwind courtship. Yes, very much so. Tell us about just, uh, you know, creating and building this incredible home in, your, in upstate New York. I mean, very different. And how did that all come about? Well, my husband was working with Philip Johnson, and he was getting a bit uh, disillusioned or restless. And I suggested uh, maybe he should think about uh, building Japanese country houses for the United States market. I'm always coming up with outrageous ideas. And my husband, always ready to go along with me, thought that that was a good idea. And so he designed a Japanese country house. And uh, with the help of his brother in Japan, we organized to have... Um, three master plasterers and two master builders come over from Japan and ship all of the equipment necessary. And then the raw materials, wood and so on, buying in upstate New York, where we had uh, 50 acres of land. And it set us off on this incredible adventure of Japan in, in America. And uh, the it was done in all the, the Japanese wood joinery method. In other words, no nails or anything like that. So it, they each had set up four stations and um, they cut the wood and the joints. And I was wondering whether those things would fit together. It's like a jigsaw puzzle. And then came the time for them to put the, the structure together. And they sort of just hammered all of these pieces into, into place like a jigsaw puzzle. And the thing became uh, this extraordinary adventure uh, that everybody in the area came around to see what was happening because it was a really incredible thing. And um, so we built this beautiful house in upstate New York. And uh, later it was bought by... Um, a lady jeweler who absolutely loved it and wrote to us many years afterwards expressing her delight with this beautiful structure that she was living in. You have been acclaimed as one of the most extraordinary dancers of this decade, and that decade would have been of the, the, 70s. the 70s. Okay, and you just had this as it's stated in what I'm reading, a phenomenal security and balance that you have like a super structured with steel. <laughs> I, I love that, you know, especially when you think, I mean, those of us who uh, don't really, I think, fully appreci appreciate the athleticism it takes to be a ballet dancer. Yes, it's it's a lot of discipline, a lot of hard work, and I was lucky to have a body that was very flexible, long limbs, a long back, and 
um, uh, with discipline and, uh, you know, training, that's that daily grind that you go through, um, you develop the, the kind of structure that you need. And for me, it was very important to go beyond just the technical side of it. And so I think the steel and, and the softness that came out of that was my exploration into how I could use technique to be free of it. So, so that I became, uh, at, I, I became at the service of something that was far greater than the sum total of myself. In other words, I became an instrument for something, for dance to come through me rather than me uh, directing it. So I made it a perfect instrument for that to be able to happen. The bottom line for you, it seems, has always been do the best you can today. Yes, absolutely, because you don't know if you have tomorrow. So um, today is really all we have. And, and uh, you start each day, or at least I try to start each day like a blank piece of paper and write my story each day uh, and, and be happy that at the end of the day I did the best I could that day because I don't know about tomorrow. And if you can build a life like that, um, it makes for a richer experience uh, and also a challenge, obviously, every day. Takes a lot of faith to uh, live life. Oh, yes. Uh, faith and courage and <laughs> you name it. I, I think life is an incredible process and you never know what it's going to throw at you. And the more flexible and the more um, able you are to dodge or to uh, accept what's given to you and make something of it, um, the, the better you, you can get on with life. And, and it's an incredible, miraculous experience, this living process. And, and I love every minute of it. As the song says, pick yourself up, dust yourself off, and start all over again. Yes, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of the motto of your life, it sounds like. Yes, it is, because, I mean, it hasn't been easy. It's been an extraordinary life, but it's, I've had a lot of things thrown at me, and um, I had to face them and uh, deal with them and uh, not give up. And so I've learned to be strong. I've learned to, be, to have empathy uh, um, and learned to do the best I can because there's no halfway measure. Um, I think that it needs to be give it all you've got and uh, keep going. <laughs> As one of your chapter titles, I'm sure uh, this is one of those challenging moments. It's titled The Accident. Yes, um, it was one of those those things that were thrown at us. Um, we just returned from England. We'd been away on, on holiday. We just sold our Japanese country house for financial reasons. And we came back, we'd left our car in upstate New York, and um, uh, we went to spend up, spend the weekend with my parents, and uh, they had to leave early, and um, uh, they never made it back to New York. And I lost both of my parents uh, in the car accident, and it, it set me off on a journey that actually lasted 17 years where I was waiting to hit bottom in order to know that I had the chance to get out of it. It was like a free fall for so long. 
And so I learned a lot of things that I wouldn't otherwise have learned. And um, it made me stronger and more aware and more empathetic to other people and, and their struggles and, and realizing that life is 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 a is a constant surprise and you never know what's going to happen and you have to be ready and prepared to deal with it i guess that's why you call your book not only a romance book but also a self-help book yes it is i mean i'm i hope and i wrote it because i was hoping that people would be able to uh look to it uh, in moments of difficulty um, and and be able to find that they're not alone, uh, that somebody else has gone through it and managed to get through it in this way. I mean, I know when I was going through things that were difficult, uh, it helped to pick up a book or to hear somebody say something that would give me courage to know that I wasn't alone and that there was a way out. You know, things can get so dark sometimes. But um, it, 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 uh, at the end of the day, when I think back, I think, God, how lucky I was to have such an experience and all of the things that I learned in order to get over that, uh, you know, and move on and with on, life. And on a lighter note, uh, what's this about this van? What? Why did that play such an important part in your life? Oh, <laughs> Uh, it was a dish of a red, bright red van with a crane on either side that my husband found in Germany. Uh, we were had, had bought a house in Tuscany and we were not residents, so we couldn't buy a car ourselves. So he had to go to Germany where his brother was resident and his brother... Uh, put the name on the car. My husband brought it back to Italy and he showed up with this bright red van. And I'd been through South America and a Land Rover and here shows up this bright red van. And I thought, my God, what has he brought? <laughs> but it was a great success because uh, we had our house in Tuscany and um, they're communist, heavily communist. And they had thought we were Americans who would show up with a Cadillac car or something. And here we were showing up with this bright red van and we had these rolling hills to get down to our house. And one, we went down the hill from the village and then there was a very steep incline and we were loaded down with all the luggage for the house. And um, we couldn't get up the hill, so we had to unload the baggage, get off, and my husband had to go back down and then scream up the hill and then bring all the stuff up. It was, <laughs> <laughs> I think the villagers and everybody fell in love with us immediately because of our red van. Tell us the significance in the, the ballet world of you being a soloist uh, with this uh, uh, renowned dance company. Well, Mercy's company, when I joined, we were only uh, nine dancers, so you, there was no way of disappearing on stage. I mean, everybody was really a protagonist, and um, I had the good fortune. I joined his company very young. I was the youngest to ever join his company. I was 20 years old, and for some reason, Merce, uh I think, liked what I could do with my body and so uh, gave me enormous opportunities very soon. And that for me was an incredible privilege, uh, not only for myself, but that I was able to interpret the work that he gave me for, for audiences to enjoy. And, and that was a great pleasure for me to know that people were enjoying how I was working and that the work that the hard work and discipline that I had put in made a difference. Yes. Well, the theme 
underlying theme of this incredible life, the courage to not give up no matter what. I think that is the dominant theme. Yes, it's true. Uh, um, you know, there's always tomorrow. If it doesn't work today, you've got tomorrow to try again. <laughs> well, that's what's great about life. There is a tomorrow, but it takes a certain attitude and a certain determination that uh, obviously a book like this gives an example to many who maybe struggle in that area. Well, I was lucky. My father at a very young age said to me nothing was impossible, and I, I really believed him. So uh, it, it, it didn't occur to me that, that I couldn't do something because he had said nothing was impossible. So I had that as a reference, uh, and, and maybe I was too stupid to, to doubt <laughs> that he was wrong. And, and that really was what always got me through everything. I thought, well, it isn't impossible. I can do it if I set my mind to it and, and give it all I've got, you know. And I, I recommend that to anybody. I mean, I think everybody is unique and special. And, and that they should believe in themselves because there isn't another one like like you and and make the best of who you are because you're coming onto this earth and you're going to live a life uh, and so it, because you are unique anything you do will be important if you believe it obviously we've been listening to Susanna Heyman Chafee she is the author of her book her memoir Love Please a memoir of destiny, loss, and healing. Susanna, tell us how to get your book. Um, you can buy it through Author House, through Amazon.com, through Barnes and Nobles. Um, there's a Kindle version, and um, you know it's it's readily available uh, on Amazon. There are several reviews of it by people who have written about the book, which I think are helpful. Um, so uh, I would love for people to go and look at it. It's a human story. A, fr a friend of mine said that it was like I was sitting down talking to you personally. And I think that's what I like the book about the book. It isn't pretentious. It's simple and direct and heartwarming. And uh, I hope people will enjoy it and that it will be helpful. Well, it's been heartwarming talking to you, Susanna. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Have you been laid off, fired, downsized, right sized, or re engineered out of a job? Are you unemployed or anticipate that possibility? Then tune in for Successfully Unemployed, hosted by Alan Sherwood, MBA, president of Sherwood Consulting Service. Successfully Unemployed will provide you a hope-filled and comprehensive approach to the job search process from an author who's experienced it all. Alan and his guests will cover all dimensions of a job search, physical tasks, mental attitude, emotional health, even one's spiritual perspective. All must be integrated in order for a person to be successfully unemployed so they can then be successfully employed. This show is designed to help you move forward from job loss to finding or creating more fulfilling work. For more on Alan Sherwood, MBA, and the show, check out his website, SuccessfullyUnemployed.com. Then join us for Successfully Unemployed with Alan Sherwood, MBA. Thursday nights at 8, 7 Central here on Toginet.com. Is there more living for you to do? Yes. Start living inspired. Be here. 
for Living Inspired with Trisha Goyer. Thursday afternoons at 4, 3 p.m. Central on toginet.com. Trisha will dig deep into topics that matter most to women, inspiring women to make a change in their own lives and to make a difference in the world, and maybe even deep within their own hearts. Trisha is a wife, mom, speaker, family expert, and author of 24 books. For more information on Trisha and Living Inspired, go to her website, trishagoyer.com. That's T-R-I-C-I-A-G-O-Y-E-R dot com. Trisha's vision is to be the voice of hope and possibility for women of all ages. Her intention is to serve ordinary women by encouraging extraordinary things with God's help. Trisha expresses real life, real hope for real women. Is there more living for you to do? Yes. Start living inspired. Living Inspired with Trisha Goyer. Thursday afternoons at 4, 3 p.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House, helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, Should Christians Prosper? The book. And the author is James H. Hooks, and Jim joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Jim. Hello, Steve. How are you doing this morning? Great to have you with us. Prosperity. Should Christians prosper? And you say prosperity is guaranteed by God himself, revealed through his word. So we're going to talk about that definition of prosperity and get some of your insight on that. It's much more than things, but that's an important part of it too. We all have to live. Uh, but as you say, prosperity has eluded so many not because of lack of desire, because of lack of understanding. So you'll help us understand. That's correct. Well, before we get into the details, Jim, tell us a little bit about your background and uh, why you wrote the book. The reason I wrote the book is uh, um, problems that I've gone through myself in my own life. Um, Prior to my current marriage, uh, I was in business, but I was fairly successful in business and also facing bankruptcy at the same time. And as a Christian that is tithing, that's a difficult process. And so anyhow, uh, God told me that instead of going through the legal process of declaring bankruptcy, that uh, I need to pay off those creditors that loan me money and also had given a service to me that I had promised to pay them back. So we need to pay them back plus interest. And so I was committed to that promise when God uh, revealed that to me um, strikingly. Also, um, that not only should we not use our tithe to pay back those um, debts, but I had decided at the time to increase the tithe at a time whenever I needed money the most. And I believe that is the key process because whenever I did that and made that decision in my own life, then uh, God really, really started to bring me out of the debt problem that I had because I was truly having to rely completely upon God and not myself. And so God is always honored to his word. God never lies. God never fails. God always keeps his word. And God kept his word in my case. And knowing that God brought me out of the situation that I was in financially, and I was wondering how many other Christians, how many other Christians were in the same position that I was with the same struggles? We're not exhumed from these problems and financial difficulties. But the problems I had to begin with was the financial struggles 
was decisions that I had made myself. You know, being Christians, we're trained to make good decisions based on Scripture, but I was making decisions based on worldly success, and that was a mistake. I needed to make those decisions based on God's Word and God's promises. So that's what encouraged me to write this book, is to help other Christians. God brings us through some deep waters in life so that we can help keep somebody else from drowning. You say the answer to prosperity, which is guaranteed by God himself, is not found in like one topic or one scripture, but it's scattered through the Bible. So tell us, you know, how many scriptures are there about prosperity? Well, there's approximately 1,500 that deals directly with prosperity in the Bible, and the Bible is riddled with those scriptures all through it. And if we try to look at a one topic, it doesn't give us one topic where we can find the answer to our problems whenever we go home and look at our bills and when we look at our checkbook and see that the bills always exceed the checkbook. And how are we going to find answers to that in the scripture? It's something that needs to be taught or else read all those scriptures like I did, and it took me two and a half years of research to read those scriptures and also read them other materials and so forth relating to those scriptures. And so uh, it's something that needs to be taught. And whenever we learn something, our mind goes through the same learning process, no matter what we're making a decision on. And I geared those scriptures and aligned them. More, all, the script, all the 1,500 scriptures aren't in my book. I've selected uh, what I believe would be the most essential ones to do my teaching on. And so I lined those scriptures from chapter 1 through chapter 12 in such a manner that we could be easy to understand and easy to comprehend. God really owns and controls all money anyway. I mean, it's, we have to rely on him, and yet that, that's, it's really about faith, isn't it? That's what you went through. You said the, you, you hit the nail right on the head whenever you said God owns everything, and this is, seems to be the hardest thing for us to understand. God owns every human. He owns all the animal life belongs to God. Every beast of the field, the fowls of the air, the fish of the sea, every soul, every human, every soul. And God owns all the silver and the gold. So now if God owns all the silver and the gold, it is his desire to release it to us and give it to his children. Because God says he will not withhold anything good from his children. He wants to share his inheritance with us. And so he tells us in Scripture, he tells us to put, please put yourself in the position where I can release it to you. We don't just pray for it and then God gives it to us and writes us a check. He says, put yourself in a position where I can release it. Now, how do we do that? We put ourselves in a position for God to release it to us according to the seeds that we sow. And the seeds that we sow are the seeds that grow. Seeds not sown is a seed that isn't grown. And so we have to sow the seeds. So if we have financial needs, then we definitely need to sow financial seeds. The seed has to go into the ground first before the crop can grow. And so whenever we plant that seed, then God releases to us the crop. 
And so the amount of the crop that we have depends upon the amount of the seed that's sown. Very well put. You can't shortcut on the farm. No, 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 you can't. And oftentimes we as Christians have a tendency to withhold God's tithe and withhold God's money and ask him to bless our bills because we convince ourselves we can't afford to tithe. We have too many bills in order to tithe. So we pray to God for God to give us the funds so that we would have more so that we can tithe. And that's like a farmer standing in his field and refusing to plant a crop and then waiting for the crop to come before he plants the seeds. <laughs> yeah, so, so tithe is not about money. It's about faith. It's about faith, exactly, 100% faith. And so um, the hardest thing for people that is in the secular world, that's the most prevalent thing in their mind is to earn, earn a lot of money and to have good things and provide good things for their family. And there's nothing wrong with that. However, that is not the first place in their life, and that doesn't provide the peace and the happiness that comes along with it. That is provided whenever we have faith in God, and we put God first, and we have faith enough in Him that He's going to hold His word true, that if we give, it will be given to us, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. And so we have to do the giving first. We have to release. We've got to plant that seed before the the tree will grow. Well, I know there's a scripture, is it Malachi that talks about where have ye robbed me? Isn't that where it says that? Am I right on that? About, you know, tithes and offerings? And where have we robbed you? We've robbed you with our, you've robbed me with your tithes right. and yeah. your offerings. Bring first into my storehouse and see if I won't open up the gates of heaven and pour out blessings you won't have room to receive. And the first comes, bring into the storehouse. Then I will open up the gates of heaven and pour out blessings. See, we ask God to pour out the blessings without bringing into the storehouse. Right, yeah. And so God really cannot answer a prayer that's already conceived in doubt because we already doubted God in our heart that if we give first, he will give us back what we give, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. And, prosper- and prosperity is much more than just money. Definitely. Whenever we're, It's born within every individual to seek in life from the time that we're born to the time that we die. We're looking for two things in life, actually three things in life. One is peace in our heart and soul. Second is happiness. We all want a happy life. And third is prosperity. And so those are things we work for. However, the majority of us seek to find those things in worldly success, in achieving great things, in achieving a nice house, a nice car, a nice boat, and things of this nature. And we feel that's where it's at. But whenever they achieve that, it never produces peace, happiness, and internal prosperity. And so the only way that that can be produced is if we put God first in our life, not only in our everyday walk with the world and, and sharing with people, but in our finances. Money is the hardest thing for Christians to give up. And that's why God put that verse in Malachi. He says, test me herewith. 
if I'll not open up the gates of heaven. When God says, test him, he is actually, we are putting ourselves to a test. And God says, you listen to me and do what I tell you to do, and I promise you that I'll follow through with my end of the bargain. That so, makes sense? That makes a whole lot of sense. You are really making a lot of sense. And so what about the poor? How can God prosper the poor? Well, God prospers the, the poor in many ways. And in and, and the poor, uh, we, um, uh, we are to give to the poor. And so uh, God prospers the poor in other people giving to the poor, first of all. Then secondly, even though we are poor, even though we have very little, God still expects the poor to give from what they have. And so oftentimes uh, people get into the um, uh, thought or the mindset, well, I don't have that much. And so um, remember the widow's might? Right. When the widow put in two mites, and Jesus said against the treasury, looking at those that put in money, and there was those that put in much, and the rich put in much, but they give from their abundance. And Jesus said something that is very, I'll tell you what, I had a hard time with this for many years, struggling with this statement that Jesus made. He said that the widow that put in two mites put in more than those that put in abundance. And the reason they had struggles with it is because they put in a lot more money than they did. But the widow's two mites were all of her living. Everything that she had. The money that she had for food, clothing, shelter, and she gave it all to God. And God had taken that two mites that she had made and is still blessing people today as a result of that two mites. And looking at it from God's way of evaluating money as to what we give, it's not necessarily how much we give, it's the purpose in our heart, and if we give out of need and not out of abundance. Can God bless the poor in that way? Sure he can. God can bless the poor in bringing back, if they give out of finances, God is going to bless their finances just like anybody else. And God can take that person that is poor with a small amount of finances and multiply those finances if they put God first. And we don't want to have the poor look at things and look at the uh, what they have as a scale of whether they're prospering or not, but what they give to God, what they do for God. And then God blesses what they give. God can never bless what we withhold I shouldn't say that. He can bless it. He can never multiply what we withhold from him. Right. Because what we withhold from God, he divides what we have. What we give to God, he multiplies what we give. And that principle holds true for poor, rich, or whoever it may be. Jim, but we the have... poor receive, in lots of ways they receive from other people that's given to them. They prosper in that manner. Jim, we have about a minute left. wanted to just uh, close on how do we stretch our faith? That's a good question. You know, God's laws are completely different than our physical laws. Whatever our physical laws say, God's spiritual laws are just the opposite. The physical laws state that if we take a gum band and we stretch it, the further we stretch it, the weaker it gets. And eventually, if we stretch it far enough, it's going to break. 
However, God's spiritual laws are completely different. If we stretch our faith, the further we stretch our faith, the stronger it gets and not weaker. And if we stretch it and stretch it, no matter how far we stretch it, we can never, ever, ever, ever break it. And so if we apply that to our finances, God says to give according to our own heart, let it be done unto us. And so according to our own heart, I feel that I can stretch my faith by stretching my finances by maybe a dollar a week. I'll pay an extra dollar a week and do that for 30 days. Then I'll pay another dollar a week and do that for 30 days. Another dollar a week and do that for 30 days. And you know, whenever you apply that process, that that stretching process, and you will find it in 30 days that you wasn't lacking, you didn't miss that dollar. As a matter of fact, you gained more. And that encourages you to see God work in your life as you go according to your own faith. You are growing. And so some people it's a dollar, other people maybe $5 a week, other people $10 a week, other people more. But whatever amount they stretch their faith, then God's going to take that amount, give it back, shaken together, and multiplied. God always is true to his word. God never fails. No matter how much it is, God will multiply it. If it's a dollar or if it's a hundred dollars, he will multiply it. He doesn't depend on the government. He doesn't depend on the stock market. He doesn't depend on the banks. Because why? Because he owns all the silver and the gold. It's God's. belongs to him. He wants to give it to his children. And he does that through our faith. And we need to continue to stretch our faith, not only in finances, but every area of our life. And we do that to the day we die. All I can say, Jim, to that is amen. Very well put. Uh, we've been listening to James H. Hooks. He is the author of his book, Should Christians Prosper? The book. Jim, tell us how to get your book. You can get it at my website, www.shouldchristiansprosper.com or authorhouse.com, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, or booksamillion.com. Thank you so much, Jim, for being with us on Author Talk. Thank you for having me. God bless.